Welcome everybody to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, this will be a deep dive into the film Nightmare Alley, which is now available on both Hulu and HBO Max. After having an actual theatrical release just in December, popping up here for streaming so quickly, and the story of this film and this book itself on which it's based, it has so many intersections into so many things that are interesting to me that I wanted to have a moment here to discuss it. So in today's episode, first of all, I'll be talking about this strange release of this film and what it says about the movie business in this, at this time, after the onset of the pandemic. Then I want to speak a little bit about the making of the film, Guillermo del Toro, the director and writer, or one of the writers, and his history with this material and why it was of interest to him. And then the most fascinating part of the story, I want to talk to you about the writer of the original novel and his biography and how it intersects with this very strange, very dark story. And then I'll actually break down the film, including spoilers. So I'll warn you when the spoilers come so you can watch the film without being spoiled if you choose to. And then after that initial plot recap and my opinion and review of the film, I'll include some commentary where I discuss differences between this film and the novel, which I just read recently back in December, I believe, in anticipation of watching this film. And the differences between the material, very interesting. I'm always interested in how adaptations are done. And I honestly feel that a lot of the changes that were made don't actually help the material. And as a matter of fact, remove a lot of the most fascinating subtext from the material. Although I did overall like the film, I'll give it a borderline recommendation. In our next episode, you will hear Sona and I will be discussing episode four of The After Party on Apple Plus, a very funny murder mystery comedy combo, which is streaming currently, as well as we will be discussing the first three episodes of the Pam and Tommy Lee miniseries, which is currently playing on Hulu as well. And that just came out this week as well. So stay tuned for all of that. Make sure you subscribe so you know when these episodes become available. We appreciate your feedback. If you want to email us at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. And I'll be right back after this short break. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth. Absolute truth. Do that. Now, brief as you can, what is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. Mr. Carlisle? Doctor, how about that? Please lie down. Can you read minds? Yes, I can, under the right circumstances. Keep your answers brief. What do I want? To be found out, same as everybody else. Are you in contact with the beyond? Well, we've had our share of snake charmers in the past. We deal with them. You don't fool people, Stan. They fool themselves. I've given you a fortune! It's time that you delivered. When does it end? I want to know. If you displease the right people, the world closes in on you very, very fast. So to begin, 
probably around 2019, the announcement that Guillermo del Toro was going to follow up his Academy Award winning The Shape of Water with a remake of both a novel from 1947 and a film noir film from 1948 called Nightmare Alley. And as the project came together, the cast was Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, all Academy Award winners or nominees, David Strathairn, as well as Ron Perlman, Mary Steenburgen, and other very well-known actors. So quite a pedigree for this film, and expectations, as you would assume, were pretty high. And it was actually disrupted. The production of the film itself was, dis- uh, was disrupted by the pandemic, where they had to break and then reconvene some months later. But beyond that was the actual release. Many films that were targeted for adult audiences had gone straight to streaming platforms. For example, we just saw the Macbeth Joel Cohen movie, which did play in large cities for a few weeks before its Apple Plus release in January. But that is just one of many films that went straight to streaming due to the pandemic. The writing was kind of on the wall. You saw films that were geared towards more adult audiences, with maybe the exception of The House of Gucci. Every other film pretty much flopped upon its release, and there was no exception, even with this star-studded cast for this film, Nightmare Alley, which came out in the second week, I believe, of December, and has made only some $20 million worldwide on a budget of about $60 million. I mean, this is a terrible result, basically, and obviously... Everyone expected significantly more. The Shape of Water with no stars at all. I mean, it did win Best Picture, so that obviously helped it a lot. But with no stars in that film, that uh, ended up making over $200 million on a much smaller budget, by the way. So the first interesting point here for me is this idea of what happens to these films catering towards a more mature audience. Is this simply going to be the purview of, A, movies that are going to go straight to streaming, as we've seen? Or B, is this just something that gets turned into a miniseries on Netflix, for example. And honestly, there's absolutely no reason that this film at two and a half hours couldn't have been a five-episode miniseries on Netflix. There's material that was cut out from the novel that could have been incorporated, and easily you can expand. But these colorful carnival characters could all be expanded slightly to flesh this into a much longer story, if need be. Another very interesting point about this release is that now, after intentionally avoiding going straight to streaming, it has now popped up Not on Disney, by the way. Disney has acquired Fox, but this is not on Disney+, Plus. although it will eventually end up on Disney+. Plus. Instead, it debuts, almost without any fanfare at all, directly to HBO Max and Hulu. So that's where you can see it right now, by the way, if you have either Hulu or HBO Max. And if you don't have either one of those, it will turn up on Disney+, Plus very soon. Which, once again, is this very strange moment where you're like, there's not even exclusivity on this streaming? Like, what is the point of managing these properties this way. And this is all because of Disney acquiring Fox. So they will eventually own all these Fox titles, but currently they have this exclusive contract with HBO Max. So you're about to see this again, by the way. Many of you may be waiting to see the Ryan Reynolds movie, Free Guy, which also will be coming to Disney Plus as part of the Fox acquisition and on HBO Max within the next week or so. So it's very strange, this weird time when these different companies are merging and also very interesting how the whole concept of having theatrical releases for these types of films may be a thing of the past so i'm very curious to see how this all shakes out i don't know how it's going to shake out i don't think anyone does my speculation here is that you're going to see some kind of blend where eventually inevitably older audiences will be returning to the movie theaters obviously younger audiences are not afraid of the pandemic anymore you look at the massive massive success of the spider-man movie and you are pretty clear that younger, especially men, 
are going back to the theaters. The question becomes, when do these older audience members come back? And I do think inevitably they will. However, there will have to be some kind of contingency for these films to be made available to streaming within a very short period of time. So maybe a one-month window in theaters and then quickly to streaming. But in the context of this specific film, this is what probably have been assumed to be a very big deal to have Bradley Cooper's next major release. And obviously this strategy going theatrical first was a disaster. Okay, so the next point is Guillermo del Toro's interesting biography in this film. In a recent interview he had with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, he mentioned the fact that, if people aren't aware of this, when he kind of rose to prominence, his father was kidnapped. He has become a A-list director, not only for these type of darker adult films, but also he has made, for example, the Pacific Rim films. He directed the first one, produced the second. He pretty much made the entirety of those Hobbit films and then backed out in the last minute because it would just take too much of his time. It had already taken years for him to pre-produce those films. And then Peter Jackson stepped in to complete them. But he just spent years designing and prepping those films. He made the Hellboy movies. But honestly, my favorite films of his are the films he's... This, his first film, Kronos, which is a very strange vampire story, very unconventional, and really did like it very much. With Ron Perlman, by the way. Ron Perlman's been there for his entire the entirety of his career. He rose to fame in Hollywood making the Hellboy movies, which Ron Perlman obviously starred in, those first two. But I like his Spanish-language films the best. Pan's Labyrinth is close to a masterpiece in my mind, almost a perfect film. And other than that, I always appreciate his films. I especially like to hear him talk. He's very much a, a lover of film, very intelligent person. But in some ways, I feel like his intelligence get in the way. I oftentimes feel myself intellectualizing his films too much. And that is the case here, once again, I do believe. Although I do think the film is worth viewing, especially if you're not familiar with the original material, which I think is much stronger. So Guillermo del Toro, his father was kidnapped and held for ransom. This is back in Mexico. And something very interesting happened. The kidnappers reached out to him and warned him that the seers, these um, mediums, would be preying on his mother. They would come to the mother and say that we can find him. We can, if you pay us, we'll find him. We'll, we'll put you in contact with him. We'll make sure he's safe. So the kidnappers in cahoots with Guillermo del Toro had to basically convince the mother to ignore those mediums and basically follow the plan. Eventually, the father was released. He was safe. But it did taint del Toro's mind in the context of these con people who use the misery and despondency of these potential victims for their own greed, which leads us to Nightmare Alley, a film that and a novel that directly addresses that. So before we get into this film and any film adaptation, I want to give you a little bit of the biography of the author of the original novel. So Nightmare Alley was written by William Lindsay Gresham back in 1946, actually. And this is the most fascinating part of this whole story to me, is how much of this book intersects with his biography up until the point when he wrote it. But then this really fascinating, almost prediction of what would happen to his life. So Gresham's born in Baltimore, Maryland. His family moves to New York State pretty early in his life. And he becomes fascinated by the carnival at Coney Island, which, of course, the first intersection with the material here in this film. He actually graduates from high school, but then immediately afterwards, he basically becomes a drifter. Once again, some of this drifting lifestyle is seen primarily in the book, more so than in this film. Gresham has a whole bunch of odd jobs, including at one point being a folk singer in Greenwich Village. So we probably, you may very well be aware of the fact that the folk scene emerged from Greenwich Village in the 50s and 60s, the pop folk revival that came with Bob Dylan and others. But actually, this was the place where folk singers would go, even back in the 1920s, in the initial wave of folk music. 
and he was in that vanguard. His parents eventually divorced at 16, and the divorce of the parents with Stanton Carlyle in the film is very important, kicking off the plot. And in the book, not in the movie, but in the book, and we'll get into the differences between the two eventually, Stanton is only about 20 years old. I don't know if it's specifically 20, or he might even be younger than 20 when the book opens. Gresham, he leaves to go fight in the Spanish Civil War. He has many odd jobs, like he's a medic in Spain. He travels back to the United States eventually. He gets tuberculosis and spends some time in a tubercular ward. He eventually writes a book that takes place inside of a fictional hospital, tubercular ward of a, of a hospital. The only, I think it's only his second novel that he ever wrote. Nowhere near as successful as the huge blockbuster that the first one was, Midnight Alley. He attempts suicide for the first time, unfortunately not the last time, in this period of time in his 30s. And eventually starts working editing at a true crime magazine where he starts writing his own noir type stories on the side. In 1942, he gets married. In 1946, he publishes Nightmare Alley, a hugely successful novel. It gets acquired for film rights immediately before the book's even published. And reading the book now, I'm surprised that I guess there wasn't the kind of censorship you had for movies that you had for books. I guess books were for adults and movies were for kids, theoretically. So Nightmare Alley, the film, the original film, has been most of the really, really unseemly stuff has been removed from it. Whereas the book has illicit sex and violence and alcoholism and murder attempts. It's pretty non-PC stuff for this time, you know, when there was the Hays Code was in effect, basically, banning a lot of its material from movie screens. So the film, I mean, so the book, which I highly recommend, by the way, is really fascinating. It deals with issues of manipulation by not only spiritualists, but then how everything is kind of a racket, as they say in the book, whether it is the rich manufacturer manipulating his employees by turning them against each other, or it's this Stanton Carlyle passing himself off as a medium, or it's the carnival tricking people into seeing these things that aren't actually there, or psychiatry, right? When Lilith arrives on the scene, I'm kind of jumping ahead in the plot, but we'll get into it. It's a critique of how in the end, every system, whether it's religion, whether it's these mediums, whether it is these entertainment venues, how everything is a production. It's all a show. And that purpose of that show is to manipulate you out of your money. So everything's just a layer on a layer on a layer, whether you're a politician, whether you're a business owner, whether you're a carnival owner, this is a critique of society and capitalism as a whole and these layers of structures on top of each other. And when you look at his biography, it's pretty clear that it's there. But let's go back into that biography. So he gets married, has this book, he becomes incredibly successful. And ironically, it's as if everything in the novel comes to pass. He becomes a womanizer. He becomes an alcoholic. So infidelity is a key driving impetus of the plot of Nightmare Alley. Alcoholism, once again, very, very important to the outcome of our protagonist here in this in this story. The next fascinating twist in this whole biography is that Gresham, before the success of the film and, and novel, had already married a poet named Joy Davidson. She was culturally Jewish, but an atheist and a proud atheist. But over time, she became a fan of C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia novels. And in reading his essays, as well as his fiction, she became enamored with Christianity and eventually converted. This led her to start a correspondence with him and eventually, through these letters, he fell in love with her, and she moved to England with her sons, Gresham's boys, to meet him, and they began a relationship. And not only did she become a Christian, but in her falling in with C.S. Lewis and their successful relationship, Gresham himself, who had been a proud atheist, had converted to Christianity. After being, like, once again, very critical of Christianity, 
in the context of this book and film. By the way, the love affair between C.S. Lewis and Davidson became the plot of Shadowlands. So if anybody's ever seen the play Shadowlands or seen the movie, although Davidson's name has been changed, the plot is exactly the same. She, if you're familiar with that, the plot of that work, she eventually dies of cancer, unexpectedly, suddenly dies of cancer. However, he continues to parent the boys. Gresham, upon her death, flies out to London, to England, I should say, to meet with C.S. Lewis, with whom he had become friendly, and he sees that Lewis is taking very good care of his boys, so he leaves him there and comes back to the U.S. In the meantime, one of Davidson's friends had moved in with Gresham. She had been running away from an abusive relationship and ends up in a relationship with Gresham herself. So it's kind of a strange. At one point, they were actually, all three of them were living together in the house. Very weird dynamic. But despite the fact that, once again, I find this fascinating, that in this book of criticizing, preying upon people on their religious beliefs, on their need for faith, as yet another con in the context of our culture, Gresham was always seeking some kind of spiritual belief. So Christianity was one phase he went through. Another, he read Dianetics back in 1950, L. Ron Hubbard's, this is the foundation of Scientology, and became a big proponent of Hubbard's writing. Eventually, he denounced Scientology and called it yet another con, just another spook racket. And some con <laughs> you'll actually hear that in the film if you watch it, this context of a spook show, which is just basically another con where you use supernatural mythology to sell your system of beliefs. Gresham did eventually remarry that same friend of Davidson's who had been living in the house with them. The boy stayed with C.S. Lewis. Gresham eventually joined Alcoholics Anonymous. And here, another huge irony, despite the fact that he had written Nightmare Alley, debunking and showing how these spiritualists did a lot of their work. And more than that, had had a successful, one of the later successes in his career, wrote a biography of Houdini, where he went into Houdini's, and if you're not familiar with this, another very fascinating intersection here, Houdini's deep skepticism of spiritualism. As a matter of fact, Houdini went and debunked spiritualists throughout the turn of the century and beyond. And he wrote a successful biography of Houdini with James Randi, the amazing Randi, who is still someone recognizable today, has been debunking spiritualists for more than half a century now. And even though he was supposedly the biggest skeptic in the world, he too began to become fascinated with spiritualism, just like everybody else who falls for a con. I've seen how they do all these things. I can tell the real from the fake. And these people, the ones he followed, were supposedly real. Eventually, in 1962, he had basically not had anything published for years. And he went back to the Dixie Hotel in Manhattan, where he had written Nightmare Alley, and he committed suicide. He was only 53 years old at the time. And it's a tragic end to his really strange life. And it's kind of one of these fascinating things that he has intersected with so many other important people in that period of time. But honestly, if he had not had that one hit book, if Nightmare Alley had not been a successful film back in 47 and how popular the novelization was in that same period, and of course now this remake resuscitates his name, he would have been largely forgotten. But really, truly a fascinating biography. He writes this book about someone who ruins their lives with alcoholism, who is a womanizer, who is a con man and spiritualist, and later in his life, strangely, becomes a womanizer, becomes an alcoholic, and falls prey to these same methods of control, these charlatans of spiritualism, that he denounced and considered himself in a journalistic way warning people against. So really, really interesting stuff. And now I'm going to get into the breakdown of this version of Midnight Alley. I'm going to talk specifically about the movie, the 2021. How do you ever get a guy to geek? Oh, I ain't going to crap you up. It ain't easy. 
You gotta pick up a broken drunk, a real alky, a two-bottle-a-day fool, see? Pick him up from where? Nightmare alleys, train tracks, flap houses, you name it. A lot of folks came back from the war addicted to the poppy, to booze. Now, opium really sinks its claws, but you reel them in with booze. You tell them, I got a little job for you. It's a temporary job. Make sure you emphasize that. Just temporary until we get ourselves another gig. You spike it with that opium tincture. One drop per bottle, that's all. But oh, oh now, this is what he thinks is happening. So you say to him like this, you say to him, well, I gotta get me a real geek. He says, ain't I doing okay? You say, like crap, you're doing okay. You can't draw a real crowd faking a geek, you're through. And you walk off. Now that night, you drag out the lecture, you laid on thick. All the while you're talking, he's thinking about sobering up, getting the crawling shakes, the screaming, the terrors. You give him time to think that over while you're talking. Then you throw in the chicken. You geek. So my mini review of Midnight Alley, before I get into any kind of spoilers or plot breakdown even, I think that this is a beautifully made film and the acting is superb almost across the board. Bradley Cooper plays a little bit of the character kind of as an enigma, although he has a couple of scenes that where his emotions break through that I think are really effective, especially towards the end. And I'd say that my criticism of the film is this is kind of how I feel about a lot of Del Toro's work. I think it's very well made. I think it's very intelligently designed thematically. And I think that sometimes he has overthought things to an extent where it robs the film of some kind of more visceral pleasures. It becomes too intellectualized. And simultaneously, I don't understand why he does this with most of his adaptations. I feel like he cuts out some of the most interesting thematic stuff. Maybe it is simply so as to make the film flow better together. Maybe some of the things are shot and they're on the cutting room floor. But long story short, especially after having read the book, I feel that some of the most interesting thematic elements of the book are not present in the film. I mean, we live in a time where so many people are being conned into belief systems by people who should know better or who do know better. And they are saying, hey, the story of America is of con men. So I'm just in that lineage. So I think there's something very interesting to be made there. And that is here in the film. But some of the most interesting elements to that critique have been expunged from the film version, especially once you get past like the halfway point. The most electric moments in the film are when Bradley Cooper's character and Kate Blanchett's characters have kind of come together. And that electricity should become more of the film. And maybe at its length, they really couldn't explore it fully. So in a way, maybe this is the type of thing, like I mentioned earlier in this episode, maybe this is the type of thing that would have been better as a miniseries. So we could have had so luxuriated in some of these interactions. So overall, I would say if you watch this, if you're completely unfamiliar with the novel, it does deliver some thrills and some horrific moments. But for me, having read the novel specifically, some of the most interesting subtext is kind of removed. So a thumbs up for me, but 
not an enthusiastic one. I also feel, just one last critique, I feel that some of the cast members are really well used. But like, for example, Rooney Mara, great actress, and Tony Collette, just to name out name two, terrific, some of the best working actors we have, kind of underused here. Willem Dafoe really has just kind of a supporting role, but does a great job, I think, as does Richard Jenkins. So in general, perhaps it's the women in general that I think that are kind of underused in the roles. Even Kate Blanchett, who I think does a great job of playing this true femme fatale. You always need a femme fatale, or usually in a film noir. She does a great job of playing the femme fatale. And even she seems a little underused because we kind of have to not trust her motivations. So I don't think they do a great job with her. And I don't think they make her motivations for her actions are less interesting here than I'd say that in the book. Once again, I keep telling you that if you like the film, you should definitely track down the book. That's basically what I'm saying. But I do recommend the film, especially because of its beautiful, impeccable design work and strong performances all around, even if a little underused. So that's spoiler free. Now I'm going to get into the breakdown of the plot itself and contrast it to the book. So in the film, we open with Bradley Cooper's Stanton Carlisle disposing of a body. We don't know who that body is until much later in the film. And he ends up at a carnival. He's basically on a bus. He steps off the bus near a carnival. And as is the want for most carnivals, they always need people to work them. And it's fine if you're a drifter, they'll take anybody, basically. So the carnival, in a way, could be read as like a metaphor for America. We'll take anybody. You kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But the goal is to make your own way. And uh, hey, if that means you're going to take a couple of nickels out of someone's pockets, as long as they know that they're in on the scam, hey, it's all clean fun. The question becomes, arguably, what happens when you're no longer playing a game with them that they're a member of? You're tricking them in some way. So I think this is a mistake in the way that the film is structured in the book. And maybe this is just something very hard to do because you have to you know, basically hire one actor to play the role. But in the book, Stanton is 20 years old. I think he's 20 years old when we meet him. But at that moment, he's already a carnival barker. And he also does some magic. So theoretically, he's been there since he was 18. And once again, going back to Gresham's biography, he fell in love with the carnival at around that time, that age. And he was like just 16, 17 years old when he ran away from home. So it's possible that Stanton may have joined the carnival as a teenager. And now we meet him at around 20. Also, the fact that he's so young makes it a little more problematic when he starts his sexual relationship with Xena. But if you've seen the film, it also makes a little more sense when we find out that Molly is basically a virgin when she has sex with Stanton for the first time, because Molly's about the same age as Stanton. She's you know, a teenager, maybe 20 years old. Whereas in the film, it's pretty clear that everybody in the cast is probably supposed to be in their 30s. So it's a little stranger that she would theoretically still be a virgin. And it's also a little strange that, you know, Bradley Cooper's in his 30s, theoretically, and he really has no past, which is another thing that I think is a flaw here, that in a way, if you read the fact that Stanton has run off with the carnival and has been raised by the carnival, that you can kind of see that his need to be a con man or to see everything as just a game of conning someone and brinks brinksmanship, basically that combination of naivete, where he thinks that he deserves a fair shake and simultaneously wants to be the con man that fools everybody else because he's so magnetic. He has this special something and everybody has to acknowledge it. That combination of naive belief in himself really only makes sense if he doesn't have a past. So when you see Bradley Cooper, who we find out a little bit more about his past, it's just that his age, you know, he's whatever, 40 years old, maybe the actor is, and uh, probably playing someone who at the beginning of the film was early 30s at, at worst, I think. That makes it pretty 
hard to believe that this guy had had no life experience up until that point. And if there was some backstory, it is completely unexplored here in the film. Another thing that happens in the book that I think is more well-developed than in the film is that once Stanton eventually leaves with Molly, and by the way, he has to leave with Molly in the book. He gets pressured into marrying her. They are found out that they have a sexual relationship. Once again, this makes more sense in the context of a very naive young girl who is being protected by Bruno, the strong man, rather than when we have here, which we do see a little of what I just described, but it just kind of, they don't really push it that hard because it does seem a little weird that Bruno would be like protecting this woman who is obviously no longer a teenager. In the book, uh, Bruno also has unrequited love for Molly, which makes him overprotective and of course probably jealous of the fact that he thought she was probably off limits sexually and then you have this situation where Stanton ends up in a relationship with her. This also makes the situation with Xena, for example, in the book, Xena does have a sexual relationship with Stanton, an ongoing one, but she doesn't speak up when he runs off with Molly. As a matter of fact, she remains friendly with both of them because she is much more in this maternal role. She knows that it would be inappropriate for her and Stanton to end up together where he's 20 years old and she's probably in her 40s or older in, I mean, in the book, I should say. So this all makes much more sense in the book, I'd say. And the triggering moment that sets on the rest of the plot of the, of the novel is the moment when Stanton cons the sheriff and tells him, you know, you're running for office. People want you to protect them. This scene doesn't have the potency. It doesn't have the weight in the film that it does in the book where you, when you see him in his, and part of this is because we're inside of Stanton's mind, but he's saying, if I can manipulate this sheriff, if I can do this, then I can manipulate anyone. I have this gift. And you really see it in the book. Obviously, once again, we have the advantage of being inside of Stanton's mind at that moment, but it doesn't have the same weight in the film. Once he leaves the carnival and he starts to go into the city, things go bad for Stanton right away. Once again, this is kind of whitewashed a little bit inside of the film. He becomes a womanizer and he really becomes abusive to Molly right away. He really leans on her for emotional support. He wants her to be there for him all the time. And in the book, she, she literally spends all night up studying the codes and things to learn how to properly read the crowd. And he really just is abusive to her in a way that we see only a little bit of here in the film because everything is so accelerated. And part of this is just because the story has been made so much more compact. This all happens within months after he leaves the carnival. In the novel, it takes place over years. So Stanton begins, after he leaves the carnival, he starts to do his magic slash seance shows in restaurants and clubs. This was pretty commonplace at the time, by the way. This is another thing that's different is that in the film, we specifically see very clearly the time frame of these events. We have Willem Dafoe's character, the carnival runner, at one point explicitly saying, can you believe that crazy Hitler has invaded Poland? That's 1939, for those who aren't history buffs. And then later, we hear, uh, towards the end of the film, by the way, we hear over the radio that Churchill has declared war on the Japanese. That's 1941. So the entirety of this film takes place over that two-year window. Whereas this takes it over, I mean, it's not clear, the dates aren't actually defined in the book, but you would assume we're looking at almost a decade of time. And part of that is so that this very young 20-something-year-old Stanton can grow to, you know, have gravitas as an older man. And part of it is just because there's a lot more that happens. He doesn't just suddenly you know, kind of fall into this very large con like we see in the film. He actually is incredibly ambitious. And at the beginning, he's doing these shows in public. Molly's on board with this. This is just an extension of what was happening at the carnival. And it is just a show, a spectacular 
and people pay to to view it. She starts getting more uncomfortable when he starts doing private shows, these spook shows, as they say, where they are now supposedly meeting with very wealthy clients in their private homes, and they are communicating with their loved ones. This makes Molly much more uncomfortable. And he starts to bristle against her, not only because she isn't as skilled as he is at reading the room, but also because she tries to impose some kind of consciousness on what he's doing. And in the book, he actually achieves some level of fame. He becomes a preacher at one point, starts his own church. And once again, Molly, very uncomfortable with this. She starts to reach out to the carnival folks who start to visit her somewhat regularly. And we see some of that here where Zena does show up at the hotel. But it is more of that. There's more correspondence that we see between Molly and what's happening back at the carnival. And they basically have an open invitation for her. If you ever need to come back, just come back. And she's still very young, by the way. So you can imagine at this point, she's probably in her 20s. She still has a lot of life ahead of her. And she's contemplating seriously leaving Stanton to go back to be with the carnival folk. Once again, not as well defined here in the film, mostly because this is so accelerated. But the key point there is that he achieves a lot. He, like I mentioned, has a church where wealthy women are giving him money. He's doing private readings in their homes. And this is making him very financially successful. But never, it's never enough. He wants more and more and more. And eventually he runs into Lilith. And in the film, if you've seen the film, she gets introduced very early on. She basically calls him out in public. This is actually a very good scene in the film itself when they meet each other for the first time, but the payoff <laughs> lessens the film. So this is kind of a lot of what I feel in the transcription is that the very thing that is one of the best scenes in the film ends up paying off badly versus the original. And in this case, what we have is he meets her, she is humiliated by him reading her. And the humiliation she feels is ironic because it is very well done in the context of the film that it parallels his cold reading of her, where he says, oh, I read you because you're like every other dame. I removed the blindfold, both for dramatic effect and to get a rise out of the audience, but also to see the way you held your clutch, elbow bent forward, clutch was heavy. And you lifted it with your left, no wedding ring, no tan mark, unmarried. So you like to go out at night, you were decopa, so you got the bees, but I assume you like to go to lower places too, don't you? If I want mud on my skirt, I can find it. Well, you live alone, no man in the house. Gotta have a gun at home, but you assume yourself to be a lady, so not a big pipe, something small, portable, 22, 25, four, six shot, maybe. And since you like pretty things, nickel-plated ivory handle. But you talked about my mother. Why? Well, dames like you always have mommy issues, daddy issues, too. I see. An electrocomplex, is it? I wouldn't know about that, but you're not as hard to read as you think, lady. If I'm so easy to read, why come see me then? You see it on Kate Blanchett's face. Excellent performance on her part. She's wounded by him basically telling her, you're so simple. It's so easy for me to read you. I don't think he intends that to be so cold to her because he had exactly the same wounding when Pete reads him. Pete reads him and says, you have a watch from your father. You had issues with your father. You loved him, but you hated him, etc." And it's the same thing. Stanton's like, oh my God, how did you know that? How could you possibly know that? You read my mind. You really do have the gift. And Pete goes, no, you're just like everybody else. And this bothers Stanton seriously. And the same thing happens to Lilith later. And those moments, that moment where she gets read and generalized and he gets read and generalized, bonds them to each other because they are deep down inside the same character. Now in the film, this is very intelligent because in the book, it's never really clear that they're making this direct association between psychotherapy and another kind of, as another type of spook show, let's say, 
in the nomenclature of the film, it directly is being paralleled here. They're saying that Lilith and what she does is just another con like the rest of these. Now, obviously, I mean, I have friends who are psychotherapists. I don't want to agree. <laughs> I don't want to agree that psychotherapy is just another con job. I don't believe that. But at the same time, I do believe that it is another mechanism in which people can be controlled. And I think that is the warning that Gresham, as, as the author of the film, is trying to call out. And interestingly, another interesting thing to his biography is the fact that there is this significant skepticism of psychiatry from Scientology, something that Gresham eventually became a proponent of after writing this book, by the way, within about four years when he becomes friends with L. Ron Hubbard, but already something that he is skeptical of writing his this novel back in 1946. So it's just interesting that we have this correlation once again between Gresham's biography and the film. So like I mentioned, this is a really great scene when Stanton reads Lilith in that ballroom, but I feel like it doesn't pay off well because it minimizes her psychology. What we end up seeing is that she basically says, the reason I did this to you is because you humiliated me in front of all those people. So you're like, you think I'm easy to read? Look what I did to you, right? Am I simple now? So her turn on him is you know, in the context of the film is purely based on that one moment. Whereas in the book, she really does seem to have an affinity with him. She really does. But she simply is using him and ends to a mean. Purely, she is just a utilitarian and he is simply a stepping stone to getting to what she wants in the same way that he has been up until that point. So she is just simply better at what she's doing. He has used every angle he has to take another step, another step up the, the ladder. And she has done the same. And that's how she has gotten to where she is. And then she takes another step. This is why she honestly doesn't even care about the money he offers her early on because she's already thinking about a much bigger prize. As a matter of fact, not in the film, but in the book. She eventually marries Grindel. She, he finds out about this later on. So theoretically, this was all a way for her to get into the pocket of Grindel, who's an older man without children, meaning that she theoretically will inherit huge amounts of wealth. And Stanton was simply the mechanism to get there. But in the film, they've simplified her to more of a straight up femme fatale. You embarrassed me, and now I embarrassed you. Simple as that. We also have, I think, totally unnecessarily, the fact that we make Grindel potentially admitting to murdering or at least hurting young girls. So in a way, it makes it feel like he might be justified in killing him. By the way, Grindel does not die in the book. Instead, Grindel survives. And interestingly, Grindel potentially, to avoid any kind of embarrassment, does not actually send thugs after him. But this is kind of fascinating in the book, is that there are multiple vignettes late in the book where Stan is inside of a restaurant. Then he sees these two big guys come in, starts asking questions, start looking around the crowd. And Stan basically starts to drift off further and further outside of society because he keeps imagining that these thugs are tracking him down. But then we find out, at least in this one instance, that these people aren't there at all tracking down Stan. So it's his own paranoia that's eating him up. With him being manipulated and rejected by Lilith, he becomes an alcoholic and things end the same way. He ends up a circus geek, just like the book and the film. So a really, really grim ending for him in either case. I just happened to think of something. I might have one job that you could take a crack at. It ain't much, and I'm not begging you to take it, but it's a job. It'll keep you in coffee and cakes, dry place to sleep, shot now and then. What do you say? Oh, yes, sir. It ain't much, but it's a job, right? Of course, it's only temporary. Just until we get a real geek. You know what a geek is? So what do you say? 
You think you can handle it? Mr. I was born for it. And Cooper does a great job here of saying, I was born for it. What a line reading in that last moment. So another key difference that I want to point out before we get to final thoughts is how different his backstory is. Once again, this only kind of works if you have this as a young man, but the inciting incident is not him murdering his dad. The biography, the background of Stanton's character in the book is this. He has a dog that he loves. He loves his dog. He doesn't have a great relationship with his mom, doesn't have a great relationship with his dad, but he loves his dog. He idolizes his mom, even though she's a little bit cold from what we can tell, but she's having an affair with his piano teacher, I believe it is. And he knows where they have their affair. He catches them. She eventually leaves. The dad finds out about it. And I don't remember if the dad finds out that he knew or didn't know, but the dad in his rage kills the dog. And this traumatizes Stanton. Stanton, the, the, he's still dreams about the dog. His strongest you know, emotional connection was to the dog. It's kind of strange how fixated he is on the dog, but it only makes sense in the context of how young he is in the novel. Obviously, I don't think you could pull that off with a 30-something-year-old man pining for his dog when you have Bradley Cooper playing the, the role. But uh, this is a big difference. And it's also very different because you see at the beginning that he has burned the house down after basically intentionally freezing his dad to death, something that does not happen in the book and also the whole story of the mother the mother has run off with this other suitor and he actually runs into her at one point he's staying in a hotel in the city years later this is when he's achieved some kind of fame and he runs into the mother in the lobby and turns away because and then follows her just out of curiosity but basically she never interacts with him and this is when we find out the whole backstory so he she has or he has this relationship with the mother that is basically removed from the film completely. We don't see that this is the antagonism he feels for the dad. And a very big difference when you consider that. But once again, probably necessary because it's kind of hard to define someone's entire psychology based on this childhood event when the actor portraying them is not a child, right? So another potential problem with adapting the material if you want to include that backstory with having a full-grown <laughs> 200 pound man playing the uh, the role so in the end the novel a much much richer text as is often the case and some of the edits that have been made by del toro i don't think really give more value to the film and once again i'm always in my mind rewriting how i would have done an adaptation of one work versus another and maybe i'm completely in the wrong maybe del toro wrote or i should say maybe del toro shot a lot of these scenes and the film was just lumbering and meandering and i mean i hate to say it but maybe as big as big a fan as i am of seeing a big movie in a movie theater and i really don't want to see all theatrical releases to be only superhero movies in the in the future <laughs> although that may be our future after all but it does make me wonder if this would not have been better served as a miniseries if you've read the book and seen the 1947 movie, I have not yet seen the 1947 movie, by the way, not available on any streaming platforms. However, just found out today in doing some research here that it's available for free. Someone's just uploaded it to YouTube and it has a pretty high resolution black and white. 
copy of it there. So I may very well dip into that, give that one a viewing as well. I think it's only an hour and a half, much shorter than this version. So uh, maybe something to check out over the weekend if I have some time. And maybe I'll come back and give you my final thoughts on that as well. If you want to read the book, it's available everywhere. You can basically download it uh, onto your device. It's for free. I should say it's out of copyright, so it's available anywhere. Uh, if you want to hear an audio version of it, you can go to Libby or Hoopla, both library apps, and it's available there. So novels available very easily, and I do recommend it. Really fascinating read. Also, when you consider, I hear so many people thinking that in this day and age, that these con men who are trying to manipulate us politically, socially, religiously, etc., that we live in some kind of new world, a story as old as time, <laughs> as they say. Uh, so just a reminder that things were just as bad or much worse back in the day. So definitely read that book. Check out the new version, the Del Toro version. Not as rich thematically, but still beautifully made and very well acted. Available on Hulu and HBO Max and eventually on Disney+. Plus. So if you have any one of those services, they'll be available now or very soon. And if you are even more uh, curious to either watch or rewatch, if you have seen it in the past, that original film noir available on YouTube for free. As usual, make sure you reach out to us if you have any comments. Recommend us to your friends and family if you think they'll enjoy the content. Sona and I will be discussing the Pam and Tommy miniseries on Hulu, which just dropped this Wednesday, I believe, just this past Wednesday, as well as the next episode of The After Party on Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus, which is going to be available this Friday, probably the day that this is publishing. And in the near future, we'll have more music episodes. Ian and I will be having some more music conversations. We will continue to cover The After Party. And I will be reviewing the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel coming to Netflix in a couple of weeks, along with a review of the original and a conversation I had with a friend of mine quite some months back, and finally will be have a perfect excuse to publish that conversation, reviewing the original, along with the watching of this new sequel, a direct sequel to the original, and that'll be available in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned, subscribe so you know when that's all available, and I'll talk to you soon.